You're listening to The Real Well Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. When it comes to real estate investing, there are five basic categories, residential, commercial, industrial, land, and special use. You can break those categories down into subcategories. A few of the more common ones are single-family rentals, apartments, retail, and office, but there's many more. I'm Kathy Fetke, and welcome to The Real Wealth Show. In this episode, you'll hear from my friend Kevin Bupp, whose focus has been on mobile home parks and parking lots. He has over $250 million in real estate transactions, and his experience includes single-family rentals, apartments, office, self-storage, and build-to-rent now. And he's here with us today on The Real Well Show to tell us what he's doing in today's changing environment. So, Kevin, welcome back to The Real Well Show. Kathy, thanks for having me back. Excited to be here. Yeah, you just released your new book, and you and Rich have been, you know, kind of side by side on the on the charts. It's really exciting. How's that going? No, it's going awesome. It's going awesome. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's, it's here. It's finally done. You know, I, I I'm guessing that Rich maybe got his done a little quicker than what I did. I, I always joke with our with our staff that uh, I started writing this thing like three years ago, and as you as as these things sometimes go, you know, life or other. I guess higher priorities got in the way and uh, it got about 90% of the way there and it's got put up on the shelf for literally about a year and a half. And then, uh, you know, kudos to my business partner. He kind of kicked me in the rear about six months ago and just said, (laughs) this is, this is your rock for the next two quarters. You get this thing out and you get it completed. And so it's done, it's here, it's out. And uh, I'm finally, uh, I'm really happy that it's finally, you know, made it out to the world. So just uh, super, super exciting times. And I'm excited to read Rich's book as well. I actually ordered a, a copy, but I don't have a Kindle. And so I'm waiting for the, the physical <laughs> yeah. version to come to me. <laughs> yeah, we wanted, he wanted to have it printed. It's called yeah. The Wise Investor for anyone who um, hasn't heard it yet. Uh, he he wanted to have it ready, but there was a shortage on paper. Get so he's, huh. his book is uh, with Rich Dad Advisors and they, they couldn't mm. get access to paper for six months. So yeah, it came out on Kindle and we'll, um, he, he did the voice too. And it's, it's a parable. So there's a like 10 different voices and many of them female. Oh so it's, it's going to be worth it for people just to get the audiobook, just to hear Rich try to have a, a female no, that's voice. That's awesome. I love funny. that. I love it. I'm excited. <laughs> I've not done the audiobook version yet, although it's, it's, uh, it's in the works, but uh, <laughs> no, no, I, it's, it's, I'm one of those old, old school guys. Uh, I'm only 43, but I don't have a Kindle. I like the physical. I like the, I always get the physical version. No, I, I like, like a real like book too. Copy, so <laughs> yeah, I agree. Very exciting. And of course, cash flow. that's been your thing. And you've been uh, mainly focused on mobile home parks. Apartments are so hot right now, or they have been. Why do you choose mobile home parks over apartments? Yeah, it, it, that's a that's a great question. Um, so we've been in and we've been in the mobile home park space for for a decade now. So it's been you know quite some time. And um, you know, I, I kind of joke, but we kind of started investing in mobile home parks when not many others really even considered it as an asset class. In fact, I had never even considered it as an asset class, but as I was going through the rebuild phase after 2008, you know, had some challenging times for a couple of years, kind of just, you know, working through the mess um, of, of the Great Recession. Um, you know, I'd owned hundreds of apartment units prior to that. And uh, and ultimately, I wanted to kind of rebuild things. And I had intended to focus on apartments. Right? I, had, I had every intention to just really put all the eggs in that basket from 2010, 11-ish, when I was jumping back into the you know, to the game and, and and all the way forward. But ultimately, I had a lunch meeting. You know, as some of these things typically <laughs> go, I had a lunch meeting with a, 
a friend of a friend. You know, I'm always looking to expand my network. And uh, a gentleman by the name of Randy here locally in the Tampa Bay area, um, he was a banker for 30 years. And so my buddy was like, hey, go, go have lunch with Randy. He's a really cool guy. He's a commercial banker. And as you kind of get your, you know, work your way back in uh, to rebuilding um, your, your, you know, your real estate empire, you know, talk to him. He's got a lot of connections in the um, local commercial finance space. And so I met with Randy. He had just retired and he bought three mobile home parks uh, shortly after retirement because he had financed a number of them for clients over the you know last couple of decades of him being a commercial lender. And uh, in any event, I had two hour lunch with Randy and Randy, when he found out that I wanted to buy apartments, more apartments, he said, you know, have you ever considered mobile home parks? And then he just went on a rant for a good, you could probably hour and a half of that lunchtime about why mobile home parks were superior and in many different ways, right? Like it was his personal opinion, but ultimately it was intriguing enough to me that um, I kind of loved that lunch meeting and, and uh, just vowed to buy a mobile home park sometime in the next year. I gave myself a year to figure it out, learn as much as I could and go buy one and, and either, you know, prove or disprove, you know, uh, Randy's, you know, Randy's opinion of the asset class. So anyway, I bought one, bought one in 2011 and, and, uh, and it went really well. And then ultimately, um, you know, we've been buying them for the last 10 years. So it's a little bit more challenging today. It's there's limited supply of that asset class. And there has over the last five years, there's been billions of dollars of uh, institutional capital pouring into this space. And so now there's a massive supply demand imbalance, you know, lots of capital chasing a asset class that ultimately has a diminishing supply because these parks get redeveloped, you know, they're in the path of progress, you know, there's higher and better uses in, in some instances. And sometimes the parks just get shut down for whatever reason, right? And so, uh, but there's not new supply, enough new supply come on the market to really feed that demand. And so and I'm not sure that was a direct answer to your question, but ultimately, <laughs> you know, it's, 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 I've always kind of been a contrarian investor and um, I always like to go, you know, the opposite direction of the herd. And it seemed like that was a good opportunity to do that back in 2011. And ultimately, again, we bought that first park. It turned out really well. And then we bought a second to see if we could replicate that success. And then a third, a fourth, a fifth. And, you know, anyway, the story goes on and on. And we've owned, yeah. we own parks today in 13 states and up in the Northeast, Southeast, and some in the Midwest. And it's been a great asset class for us. So it's been a lot of fun. Isn't it amazing how one conversation can change everything? <laughs> it, it's yeah. amazing. I, I, I know. I think that's I've... important to just be open-minded, right? Like always yeah. just always be aware, always just be conscious and, 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 and be open-minded to new ideas. And again, it's, I think the scary, you know, a lot of folks get scared of like, you know, thinking in a contrarian manner, or like kind of what direction, everyone's going this direction, what's over here, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and Well, why aren't people over there yet? Like, you know, but just be open-minded that there's, there's other opportunities out there that, um, that aren't yet not necessarily discovered, but they're not, they're not, you know, in the mainstream media and there's not big institutional capital chasing yet. In fact, I've got a good buddy of mine that he's been in ins institutional space for years. And he's like, you always you try to figure out, like, just keep your, 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 your ear, you know, to the word in the streets and, you know, you'll get reports from like green street advisors and, and, and find out where the institutions are planning to head. Find out where they're tracking to go towards, right? And also try to try to be a front runner there. Try to be in, in, in ahead of them before they ultimately get to that space. And um, you know, mobile home parks are, are just that. I mean, I didn't think that back then, but ultimately now I'm looking at. It, I'm like, well, we were definitely were front runners in that space, and now there's just a, a ton of capital flowing into the space. You know, build to rent's kind of one of those markets now, right? There's just billions upon billions of dollars flowing into the build to rent space. Same goes with single family, right? I know that you guys uh, do a lot of single family investments and, you know, 15 years ago that wasn't the case, right? Mom, you know, it was a yeah. mom and pop business and now it's, you know, very much institutionalized and there's 
billions of dollars chasing it. And so, um, yeah. And back then people always thought, oh, they'll, the institutions will never figure out the single family home market because they're, (laughs) you know, it's all spread out and how do you manage it all? And Warren Buffett even said, you know, in 2012, I think it was, oh, if I could buy a few hundred thousand of them, I would, but how would I manage it? But when he said that institutions listened and they figured out how to manage it. Right. That was it. That was the missing piece, right? That Mm -hmm. was the missing piece. And I I believe it was, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I think it was, was it progress residential or, or, you know, whatever the, you know, the prior variation of that company was, I mean, they're, they're the ones that ultimately, you know, figured out the, the management, you know, like an efficient management of the single family space when you've got these assets spread amongst, you know, not just a handful of markets, but you know, hundreds of markets across the country. And so um, yeah. they got it, they, they, they figured it out. And I think if you throw enough money at anything, you figure it out, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Elon they've got the Musk, money to throw. Elon Musk is a perfect example of that, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, to be Elon. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, I got to meet him. Really? Uh, when I won the 100 top 100 most intriguing entrepreneurs uh, from Goldman Sachs, I got to meet the other 99 entrepreneurs, and uh, he was there. And he his story was fascinating. Where he he put everything on the line and uh, mm-hmm. to, to get SpaceX going, and really thought he was going to go completely broke. Typical entrepreneurial story. And then on I think around Christmas when he's like, well, we're not going to have a very good Christmas because <laughs> he you know he'd like put everything on the line. Uh, he got a call from the government saying that they would, you know, co- work with him and, and work with him meant lots of money. So it just, it, it was a fascinating story, but anyway, this is not about Elon. This is about you and you, and you talking about wanting to do something a little different. Um, certainly Elon does that trying to dig tunnels in LA. I mean, it's just incredible. Anyway, um, you have some other alternative investments that you've been doing recently as well, where I don't know if there's a lot of competition. So tell us about that. Yeah, no, no, that, I appreciate that. Yeah. So one of the, again, being the contrarian investors that we are, we, um, one of the asset classes that we kind of stumbled upon, again, this is a direct result of a conversation I had, actually someone I interviewed on my podcast like four years ago. And um, he, he was one of the a handful, when I say a handful, there there truly are less than five brokers in the United States that focus on the parking investment niche. So parking lots and parking garages. And so there's there's one CBRE group out of Texas, and then there's you know two or three other little, you know, you know, independent brokers. He was one of them. And um and I interviewed him on the show because I love I I just again I love you know niche asset classes. Um, and this one, which I, I had no, uh, I didn't understand, I didn't understand that business model. I didn't know anything about it before I interviewed him. But ultimately after our interview, I was intrigued, intrigued enough to kind of dive a little deeper and found out there was a, a you know, a lot of similarities in, in that asset class as there was manufactured housing or mobile home parks, right? It was a very, very fragmented asset class with you know, 98% of the, of the surface lots and garages in the country owned by, you know, what we might consider may not necessarily just mom and pop, but also just small time investors. They weren't institutional or they weren't private equity firms that, that owned it. And so it was a very, um, very fragmented space. It had never, never been consolidated. And in addition to that, you know, the other attractive nature of that business model was that, you know, there, there are no shortage of professional uh, operators across the country, parking operators across the country. And, and the unique thing that we, that we found is that, Amongst all these hundreds of parking operators, some are local, some are regional, some are national, right? So, you know, again, all different sizes. The majority of them don't own the real estate. 
it's it's strictly just a management business. And I was just, I was flabbergasted by that. And I went mm-hmm. to a number of conferences, talked to a number of these operators, CEOs of some of these big, you know, management firms. And they just, for whatever reason, they they did not have an attraction to owning the physical real estate. They just wanted that cash flowing business. They just, anyway, so it was, it was that, that, that to me, I saw that as an opportunity, an opportunity to, um, to try and consolidate a space that again was very fragmented, lots of mom and pop ownership. But the other aspect was that a lot of these operators, again, these smaller region, you know, smaller operators or regional operators, a lot of them ha- hadn't yet adopted the available technology that's out there. For example, mm. we bought a parking lot a couple of years ago and it still had, and it was, it's in downtown Wilmington, North Carolina, phenomenal market, historic district. I mean, but they were still collecting payments physically, you know, dollar <laughs> bills. And so if you didn't have a credit card, if you didn't have a credit card, you wouldn't park there. And I don't even, I don't carry cash with me. So I would, I would have had to find another parking spot. I wouldn't be able to park there because they wouldn't have accepted my credit card. And so there's lots of mom and poppy opportunities just like that. And, and at the end of the day, the, the, the big thing that attracted us to this space was that assuming that it's in a good growing market, either downtown CBD or a, you know, high trafficked tourism destination, the current value today is a parking lot. It, that that piece of property will never be less than what it is today, <laughs> right? It, it will never be less. It's just, right. it's literally either a piece of asphalt or gravel or whatever it is, but it literally can't go any less than what it currently is at present time. So there's you know there's no not really any improvements there yet, and so we we see it as a good opportunity to um, have a cash flowing covered land play, one that ultimately um, has very low maintenance associated with it. Um, and actually very low management responsibilities because ultimately what we do is, is we go in to find these, you know, um, underperforming, I guess you could put it, um, parking lots and then find the best operator in that respective area and then sign a triple net lease with them. You'll do a five or 10 year triple net lease. And so we're completely hands off and we let them do their thing. And ultimately, again, there's not much maintenance or upkeep even on their part because the most you really have to do or fix maybe potholes here or there signage striping of the you know of the, of the parking spots what have you and so again it's just a it's a phenomenal cash flowing covered land play that allows us to not necessarily you know we looked at it as we didn't have to expand our infrastructure of our company we didn't have to hire another every every parking lot we bought we didn't have to hire more staff to to manage it and so it was a very easy plug and play um, investment vehicle to what we we're already doing in the manufactured housing space. So, and that's a long-winded answer to your question, but that, that's one of the exciting things that we've got going today is, is, is parking lot investments. And uh, uh, the pandemic kind of kicked that that industry's butt a little bit, and so there's some pain. There's some pain that's coming out of it, um, you know. Which again, I never never wish pain upon anyone, but it was in, it was one of the industries just like hospitality that. Oh, I see pain, which then resulted in opportunity. That's that's correct. That's okay. Correct. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, incredible. Well, we'll see what happens when all the cars are automated, <laughs> and yeah. and people aren't driving around and. And uh, they still need somewhere to go. They still need a place to park. Yeah, they yeah. still need some place to park. And you know, the interesting thing is, uh, there's a, a number of major cities, not just a, a handful, but there's dozens of major cities across the country now that are actually completely eliminating their parking minimums for new developments. And so, you know, a new developer comes in and wants to build a, a hotel or an apartment building, and you know. Prior to that, they had a certain number of parking spaces per square footage or however they, you know, had, had the required minimums. Ultimately, there's major cities across the country. And Nashville is just one of the more recent ones, completely eliminating the parking minimum. So developer now has the option. Do I add that additional parking space or two that 
probably wouldn't get used anyway. And I'm just only adding because the city says I have to, or do I put another, you know, 700 square foot apartment that I'm going to get $4,000 a month for. Right. And so, um, that's basically the supply of parking in these downtown CBDs and same goes with the tourism locations. It's, it's going away very quickly, both with new developments at, and also as these surface lots gets redeveloped. And so, um, there's a massively shrinking supply and, you know, kind of like mobile home parks, municipalities, they don't love parking, right? It's not sexy. It's not pretty. And so very few new parking lots ever, ever get constructed. And so uh, anyway, it's, it's a, it's a very attractive niche and, uh, one that we're incredibly bullish on and, and uh, have done quite well just over the last couple of years that we've been bought by buying it. So. Congratulations. It, it's truly amazing how many different ways you can make money in real estate. It. It I, there's no right I or met wrong a guy either. once. He just <laughs> he just would buy land because it was a great location to put signs on for the freeway. And they apparently that's a huge cash flowing business if you can you billboards. Know, have billboards. Yeah. yeah. Have cell land phone that, towers, you got billboards. I mean cell phone tower, yeah, all that. Yeah. I mean, now, so I, I've got a my brother lives in Pennsylvania and he owns a mill working company and they've got a I think it's a 60,000 square foot, you know, uh, manufacturing plant building. I mean, it's just a big industrial type building. And they lease out an acre of the rooftop to a cannabis grower. <laughs> and, yeah, it's, I mean, it was space that was not being used. And I, I don't know what they what they get as far as income, but it's a it's a hands off additional revenue stream for them. And so, I mean, there's uh, there's just opportunities galore. Again, it's all about just keeping your eyes open to the opportunities that are out there, not just not what the mainstream is looking at, but you know, little niche spaces where um, one can get in and, and be in a much less competitive environment and maybe, you know, ultimately, you know, make a lot of money before everyone else gets wind of it. Yeah. I, another little thing that's popped up that I think is super cool. And I know you and Rich have, have gone, um, you know, in the snow, you, you're a snowboarder and he's a skier. Uh, one thing that people hate to do is carry their equipment. So I've been seeing a lot more companies, even if it's a restaurant or a hotel that's really close to the, um, the chairlift and they'll just rent out, you know, space for you to store your, your, your equipment, your skis or your board. And I just thought that that's, I want to do that in Malibu, have, be able to have a place where, or at least talk to these people who own, oceanfront and like, Hey, can we just rent your garage to store our surfboards? That would be an incredible business. There's so much opportunity. Yeah, there is. I mean, I think there's, there, there's apps now. I don't, I can't think of the name of the one, but there's one where you could, you could rent your garage space um, at your home. If you have an extra garage or a parking space that's in front of your house, uh, yeah. probably, probably more keen to, you know, urban type environments, but to where you can make use of it, rent it out. If you're not using it or, or utilizing it, rent it out to someone else that will. And so again, there's just a, a ton of ways. I know that you're in the, you're, you're in the short-term rental space as well. I mean, there's just a, a litany of ways to, to make money in real estate. And I think that's, that's, that's actually, I mean, that's something important for everyone to understand you know, and I, there's so much information out there, you know, with the, just the litany of podcasts that are out there, you know, that, that didn't exist 20 years ago. Um, you know, there's endless books on the topic and, it, it can be overwhelming. I mean, it, it the, and that there's a, there's not just like five shiny objects. There's like hundreds of them. And so <laughs> just kind of picking one of those, like pick a lane and just mm -hmm. become the master at it and try, try yes. to like block out all the other noise. Cause it, there, again, there's no right or wrong. You can make money all these ways that we're talking about. And so just pick one that you think is best in alignment with you and your personality. And ultimately that you think will help you achieve your goals and just run at it. And I promise you, if you put enough focus and energy there, and you surround yourself with the right people, you'll make money. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I, I, 
So, so true. And the times I've really made mistakes is when I veered from that. You know, I went to so many uh, real estate investment clubs because I was asked to speak and I would hear about all the different ways that you could make money in real estate. And for some reason, it still felt like single family homes is my thing. Like I get it. I understand it. We've, you can kind of expand a little, we, you know, instead of just renting it, okay, we'll build these houses and, you know, but it's still in that same niche of, of single family homes. But it's when I tried the, you know, Wine Village, right? That okay? What that is was that? hard. That a wine was, Village. I'm not oh. familiar with that project. What, what's yeah. that all? I like that. I love wine. So does my wife, and so it sounds very intriguing. Oh, we have anybody <laughs> who wants to invest in a wine village in California? It's it's it was a way to bring all these really good wineries that are sort of off the beaten track, and people don't know about them, and um, to to have this piece of land where they could just drive right right off the freeway on the on the way to Lake Shasta and try different wines from that, um, you know, Northern California area. And that's great for the wineries too. They get the exposure and we could charge higher rents because they're just having a little tasting room that they'd be renting. Uh, but just getting it off the ground has been really hard. So if anybody out there is interested in this, <laughs> wants to have a wine village, we've got one teed up. <laughs> yeah, no, I love that. We, we, we just spent, um, uh, uh, time in Santa Barbara wine country a couple months back. And so mm. I absolutely love, Love wine country in general, no matter where it's at. But uh, uh, yeah, Northern yeah. California wine country is is that. Well, I guess that is that. Tech, that's technically that's that's still north. That's southern. I mean, that's saying Southern California, right? Where you're at. I'm in southern, but in Northern yeah. California is where Lake Shasta is, and of course it's okay. just north of of Napa. Um, but with the it. problem we ran into was the financing for something different. Mm-hmm. Banks tend to like the thing that they know. Yep. Um, so tell me when you're in these niche markets, how is that with financing? Are you able to get yeah. bi- bank financing? It, no, it's a, it's a, it's a really good question. You know, speaking to, to mobile home parks 10 years ago, it was incredibly difficult when I would, when I say that I would, we would bang our heads against the wall and we would just literally dial for dollars to banks trying to get loans on assets that had good books, good financials, you know, good historic track record of, of producing cash flow. And the banks just, they didn't understand it back then. You know, the yeah. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were in the space, but they were you know, a fraction of what they are today. But they also, back then, they had really stringent parameters of what that park had to be in order to qualify for the loan. So, I mean, it basically had to be a five-star park with, you know, you know, concrete curbs and sidewalks. And, I mean, just in, in a, you know, uh, a primary market They've loosened up their um, their parameters quite a bit over the last decade, but you know, really, I'd say f- within the last five to six years, it's been a night and day difference as far as the number of lenders that understand the space and are comfortable in lending into the space. So again, it was a, it was a major challenge, and so you know, there's pros and cons there. And so with that being said, I guess one of the the benefits of that challenge is that sellers back when we started buying parks sellers were aware or owners of properties that ultimately became sellers they were aware that financing was hard because they probably went through it themselves when they bought right. that property and so it was very understood that owner financing was a viable strategy like if if they mm. wanted to sell the property for top dollar that ultimately there's a chance they might have to hold a note on the property and so i mean literally i probably the first 15 mobile home parks we purchased 12 of those were financed by the seller. Oh my and, gosh. That, it's completely wow. flip-flop today uh to, to the parks that we bought over the last five years. Complete flip-flop of you know the parks that we bought in the last five years. I I actually I can't remember the last park that we bought that had seller financing. And so uh, anyway, because now there's options. In fact, 
there's there's actually probably better options today, better terms than what you might get from a seller. Um, uh, you know, again, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac are both in the space, and they offer the best hands down the best terms if your mm-hmm. bar qualifies for it. And um, so we've got many Fannie loans. Again, it's all non recourse, thirty year amortization, ten year term. You know, number of years of interest only. And, uh, and and just rates that are below that of what one would get from a bank. And so, again, it, it was hard. It's not as hard today. Parking lots, um, parking lots, again, it's, uh, it's you know, it, it's very niche um, I wouldn't say there's any lenders out there that specialize in, um, <laughs> in, in parking lot assets. Uh, and, you know, there are a number of life companies, depending on the size of the asset. We have a, a garage that we recently purchased in uh, here in Clearwater Beach in our, in our neck of the woods um, in Tampa Bay area. It's a newer asset. Um, it's in a phenomenal location, irreplaceable location. And so there's a number of uh, life insurance companies that love the, uh, love the parking sector, more specifically uh, garages. And so uh, we've got a, a number of options there as far as long-term debt's concerned. But when you start looking at small surface lots in you know, downtown areas or even tourism locations, it's more of a local bank. Um, and so long as there's you know a track record of financials you know associated with that property and it's a stable property, you're not going to have a challenge. But you're not you're not also gonna, you're not going to get 75 percent loan to values. You're probably going to be. They almost look at it, even though it's cash flowing, they kind of you know, lump it in the bucket as like land. And so you you know somewhere in the 55 65 percent range as far as loan to value is considered. And so um, I'm not sure if that will change. You know, I, it's, it's I think it's a very different space. I don't see that space getting consolidated. Um, like mobile home parks will, because ultimately, like these surface lots, at some point or time or another, there's going to be a higher and better use. And whenever there's a higher and better use, that property is going to get redeveloped. And so, inevitably, as time goes on, we're going to see a shrinking, you know, a shrinkage of parking available parking in any uh, any of the areas that we visit, whether it's a downtown location or again, a, you know, a tourism location, what have you. And so. Um, I don't think that there will be lenders coming into that space. It's just going to be a matter of you're going to bang your head against the wall, find the lenders that are going to be the right fit for that that particular property and uh, um, keep working it until you find one. <laughs> you no, know, that's day. really interesting. I would love to hear more about how you structured the seller financing because yeah. I just had somebody reach out to me to fund an RV park and, mm-hmm. and it may have the same issues that mobile home parks had before where it's hard to get the financing. Um, but he really crunched the numbers and, uh, you know, there can be, it can be very profitable. Mm-hmm. So I, that's what I said. Well, go negotiate. If they're having trouble selling, it's because they, there isn't financing and they might yeah. structure it that way. So that that's kind of the exciting thing. Like you said, when there's something a little unusual, you might be able to come in and, and, uh, take it over that way. So how, how do you, how did you structure the seller financing? Yeah. You know, it's, and I don't think it has to be too complicated, you know, first and foremost, we'd always try to align ourselves or our offer of the terms with whatever the seller's needs were. And, um, and I'll give you an example. What I mean by that in a general sense, you know, one, one would think that I'm just going to make the offer on seller financing, you know, similar to that of what I might expect to get from a bank. And so if I, if, if, if I found a bank to do the deal, you know, I might be expecting they'd give me a 70% loan to value. So I'd you know, 30% down payment, you know, bank terms are 5% and, you know, normal amortization would be you know, 25 years, maybe even 30 years. And so that's what I'm going to offer the seller. But I think it's more important to find out what the actual needs of the seller are. And what I mean by that is one of the deals that we did, um, it was, a, I think we paid a million, million dollars for it, uh, rough numbers. And uh, we had originally made our offer, uh, I think 20 or 25% down. I can't recall which one it was. And the seller came back to us and said, you know, guys, 
I only need about $100,000 to really meet my, my, my tax nut that I'm going to have coming my way. And I'd rather just have the cash flow uh, and not take that additional money now and pay the taxes on. So I'd rather just pay it as it comes in. And so basically, he lowered the down payment to $100,000 from the, again, I think it was two fifty that we were going to put down. And so like that, that was in alignment with his needs. Uh, he didn't want to pay additional um, gains on on that you know additional hundred fifty thousand dollars that we were going to give give him as a downstroke and so um he was more he was more focused on the cash flow piece of it he wanted the reoccurring income that park had always produced reoccurring income for him and he didn't want to lose that it was just now switching it, it was switching from the property itself at a property level providing income to him to now an actual from a note attached to that property mm, and yeah. so um Again, I don't. I don't think there's there's not necessarily rocket science as far as like what that structure looked like. Most of our structures always were in alignment to what a bank might offer, um, and uh, uh, you know every seller is a little different. Some sellers more they want that lump of cash up front. Maybe they're going to go buy something. Maybe they're going to go buy a vacation home, or they want to buy an RV, or they want to go take some you know elaborate vacation. So that hundred thousand dollars wouldn't have cut it for them. They want more than that down. Maybe they want twenty five, thirty, thirty five percent down. So, uh, but aside from that, we would always just mirror you know typical terms that might be available, um, you know, fr from a bank and, you know, you want it to be a win-win scenario. I, I do hear some people, you know, bragging about, you know, it was zero down or I got them to sign on a 3% rate or got the whole thing to be interest only throughout the entirety of the term, or I got them to give me a, a 35 year amortization or what have you. And, you know, you can always ask for those things. And, and ultimately it would be uh, to your benefit if you can get terms that are much better than that of what a traditional bank might offer. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's got to be a win-win for both parties. So I think just having that conversation, really figuring out what's in the best interest of the seller and also the buyer so that ultimately you can come together and, and make a fair deal happen. Everyone walks away happy and, and, and satisfied and, and feels like they were successful in their negotiations. I love that. Awesome. Okay. Well, any last tips for our audience on what, you know, opportunities or lessons learned? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think just, uh, you know, I think we hit on a little bit about just, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of noise out there, lots of opportunities, um, especially now with social media, you, you go on your feed and, Again, if you're like like you, Kathy, like me, and like a lot of people that are probably listening, they probably have another at least a few hundred other people on their social media feed that are also real estate investors, mm -hmm. and um, and people are making posts about you know they're making you know whatever acquisition fees or wholesaling fees or whatever it might be. they're making money in you know many different ways in, in real estate, and I think just you know staying the focus, staying in your lane, pick, picking a lane, and staying in it. And just becoming the expert at it. Um, you, you'd mentioned your know, single family, like you get it, you understand it. Um, you've been doing it for for decades now, and it, there's plenty. Of, I mean, like th that is that that is your space. I mean, you you guys have mastered that space, but it's taking you time to do that. You would not have been able to master that space if you were doing ten other things that simultaneously, <laughs> right? And right. so pick that lane, stay in it, and become the expert at it. And uh, ultimately, you'll find success again. There's a million and one different ways to make money in real estate. Just pick one that best aligns with you and your personality and your your ultimate goals, and I think you'll do great. Awesome. All right, Kevin, great to have you here. Thank you so much. Kathy, thanks for having me. Take care. And thank you for joining me here on The Real Wealth Show. I want to let you know that my hubby, Rich Fetke, just published a book that you might want to check out. It's called The Wise Investor, a modern parable about creating financial freedom and living your best life. It's a very easy to read story about a family man who's tired of living paycheck to paycheck. And he decides to learn more about real estate. So he gets a mentor 
and eventually becomes wealthy in more ways than one. The Kindle book is for sale now on Amazon, and the hardcover and audio versions can be pre-ordered. Again, the book is called The Wise Investor, and you can also read more about it at realwealth.com forward slash grow. Thanks again for joining me here on The Real Wealth Show, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to realwealthshow.com.